when, uh, not if you are placed in a situation that is highly complex, which calls you to make a decision to either promote righteousness or promote unrighteousness or to kind of chicken out and slink away or to step up to the plate and do something bold and courageous, um, what are you going to do? Or what have you done in the past? Uh, But you are going to face things, especially as a Christian, that are going to challenge you where you will have two paths, a high road and a low road. Uh, The low road, the majority of the people take it. The high road is a tougher road. Uh, Is it easy to be courageous? Uh, No. Uh, Is it um, simple to be courageous? Uh, No. Uh, It's very costly because when you are courageous, especially in our culture, as it becomes more anti-Christian, when you are courageous for God, uh, well, you have certain things can hit you. Fear of rejection by family. Uh, or friends. Uh, you can be sidelined uh, at work. You can be passed over for a promotion. Uh, you can be labeled uh, with pejorative terms. Uh, you can be deplatformed, uh, and you can be canceled, or all of the above. Uh, and so when you think about being courageous for God, you have to think about those things in the back of your mind. This is what a culture that's anti-God does to people who are for God. Um, but uh, when you think about how the, the Lord is a, a spoken to us, especially in the Sermon on the Mount where he gives instructions on how to live like a kingdom member in the here and now, uh, we are called to be salt, to decaying meat, and light to darkness. Uh, And we are supposed to step up to the plate and do those. And there will not be a time in the next week that you face where you will not be faced with some kind of situation where do I stand up for God or do I just remain silent? Um, Esther was that kind of book, as we're going to see, where the young lady... uh, moved from silence to absolute action for God, and God blessed her. Um, I was thinking back through my, as I've studied this book in detail, um, over the last several months, uh, I get up at five in the morning and, and, and read. I've been reading many books on Esther, and then Persian history as well to understand the time. Um, I, I started making a list of uh, all of, the, of the, the major reversals in my life where you know God did things that were off the hook I didn't anticipate which is what this book is about, where God put me in situations where I was faced with a decision I had to make to either represent him or not. Uh, it happens all the time, and it happens when you don't even expect it. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one of them that happened to me that I was not even anticipating having to make a decision that day. Uh, I, I had just moved to Stockton, California to be a, a pastor of that little church plant, uh, and uh, I had the kids in the car one day. We're in a nice neighborhood. Uh, we're, we're driving in a 25-mile-an-hour zone to a little four-way stop by my house. I'm, I'm probably maybe 80 yards from my house. What, what major thing could happen to you in your neighborhood? So I'm just driving along, and uh, there's a car in front of me, and I pull up to the four-way stop, uh, and that, that car in front of me pulls out into the intersection to go across the intersection. And about that time, uh, they were, uh, some local uh, gangsters in my neighborhood, because there was an apartment complex uh, down by that the, right on the corner of where that four-way stop was, there's a lot of uh, thugs lived there, like gangster types. Uh, and uh, they were street racing, and they had a, a souped up uh, like a Kawasaki motorcycle. They were probably going 65 to 70 miles an hour. Uh, they did not make that, that stop sign. And when that car in front of me pulled out into the intersection, I watched that motorcycle and its two riders hit that car, uh, T-boned it, uh, going about 65, 70 miles an hour. It was unbelievable. I and mean, we were just going to, you know, get a burger or something. Next thing I know, there's, this motorcycle just disintegrates. Uh, and I watched these two guys flying through the air, like 20 feet in the air, flying through the intersection, just, just like rag dolls. And then they, they land, you know, w- w- way down the street in the gutter. I'm like, huh? Uh, and so I jumped out of my car. I went over to the car where the people were, um, uh, you know, wh- who had been hit to see if they're okay. They were okay. Um, 
And then I ran over to, you know, see how the guys were in the gutter. Uh, and, you know, so whenever they were stunned uh, and they were just like in a state of shock. Uh, and then all of a sudden, all their, their homeboys came out of the apartment complex and were like, whoa, that was awesome. <laughs> that was amazing, man. I'm like, the guy's in shock, you know, uh, show some compassion. So this huge group forms. Well, it, since that little area was under the jurisdiction of the California Highway Patrol, where we live, that residential area, um, all of a sudden there's a CHP officer there. I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. Thank you. Uh, he gets out of his car uh, and he starts walking toward uh, the people in the gutter. He's you know, calling for an ambulance and everything. Uh, and then all of a sudden the, the, the group became like a mob. And they're chanting, chanting, as I'm standing there, death to the CHP officer. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Uh, and so he's trying to get control of them, to push them back. There's just one of him. There's probably 25 of them. Uh, and they're very unruly. And I'm like, this is, this is going south. I was, just, I was just driving down my neighborhood street, minding my own business. And here I am standing there. Uh, and so the police officer finally gets control of them with his persona. Uh, and he had also had a weapon and other items, which helped him. Uh, but they finally stood off, but they're still yelling and chanting at him. And then he turns to me and he said, and there's another guy standing there with me who was also, you know, in, in the traffic that day. So he turns around to me and he goes, hey, are there any witnesses to this wreck? No, not really. No, I just... <laughs> Do you see how fast that happens? Okay, so if you're me, you have two thoughts that cross your mind, Right? Thought one, I live in this neighborhood, and if I say I'm a witness to this, and those guys are street racing, these guys live like, I can see the apartment complex. They're going to, and the mob is yelling death to the cop, and I'm standing here, and I'm like, they're going to see me give testimony, then they're going to come over and probably burn my house down. So, hmm, uh, option two, what's the second option? I have no idea. I have just, all of a sudden, I was just, you know, yeah, um, which option do you think I took? What would you do? What would you do? The first option. Why? Is the first option the right option? Low road, high road. What's the low road? I see nothing. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, no, but no, I, I saw the whole thing. And so I, I, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to have to give a testimony. Uh, and so he put his little uh, uh, clipboard down on the hood of his car, and I gave him all the details of what happened. You know what? They never did anything to me. Isn't that interesting? The gang never did anything to me. Which just tells you, when you stand up in a, in a courageous way, God goes before you. So I don't know if God, looking down from the throne that day, you know, told whatever angel's in charge of me, he's going to need backup for a while. You know? <laughs> now, now, I do not tell you that story to tell you how, how great I am and brave I am. I tell you that story to, to just communicate to you how quickly... You can be thrust into a situation where you're going to have to make a decision. Do I stand up for God or do I slink away? Because it can happen quickly. It could happen with you. On, it could happen to you in the parking lot trying to leave today. <laughs> right? You never know how that's going to happen. So when you look at the book of Esther, Esther is a book about uh, a young lady. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, there's not many books in the Old Testament that are, writ that are written about women. Uh, you think of another one? Ruth. Ruth? Yeah, another one. This is the book of Ruth. Uh, Esther, um, a young, young orphan, uh, didn't have parents. Uh, her uncle uh, raised her, uh, Mordecai. Uh, she's a nobody from Nowheresville. She's a Jew living in captivity. Um, and uh, 
uh, as we're going to see in chapter 1, uh, she's, she's going to rise from being a nobody to being the queen of the country. It's, it's amazing. God, t God takes her to have a beauty contest. Uh, they choose her to be the queen. She wins the, the, the role as a queen and everything. And, and then she's thrust into this political sphere uh, with information that comes to her uh, through her uncle Mordecai that... Uh, uh, that they, uh, a wicked man named Haman in the political structure of the country wants to kill all the Jews. He wants to wipe them all out. He's, he's going to tell his, uh, uh, his niece, you need, you need to do something. You're in a position to do something. You need to do something. And so when you read the book, uh, she who was uh, just going through her life, uh, enjoying life as a queen, all of a sudden is faced with, they want, they want to exterminate my people, the Jews? Well, the king doesn't know that she's a Jew. And so there's a lot of things that are going to come out in this book that are amazing. Uh, but she's, the, what you must understand is that when she's faced with this challenge that quickly came upon her, uh, she comes to the point of, uh, if I go to the king unannounced, he can execute me if I, he, if I wasn't invited. But she's going to go anyway, as you're going to see when you get to chapter 4, which would take a few months to get there. Just hold on. <laughs> but you're going to see when you get to chapter 4 that uh, when she is given this decision, help my people from these anti-Semitic people or, or, or be quiet, she uses her political position and power to advance righteousness. Again, I ask you, what are you going to do when you're put in that situation? Uh, are you going to stay silent? Um, you might right now be facing a dilemma in your personal life, family life, uh, in your work life, uh, where you are right now, you're already going, you have got to be kidding me. Uh, I know exactly what the situation is. Um, you might be... Uh, uh, a, a person who has privy to information uh, about someone that could thwart evil activity, but you're being pressured not to say anything. Uh, you might be a, a parent uh, being told that you need to just go along to get along with the school's gender policy. Just That's just the way that it is. So do you? So what do you do? Um, you, you might be uh, an attorney uh, that's being intimidated uh, be, because of information that's come across to you that, you that you know that you're being intimidated not to use the information that you know in a certain case. And so you have a choice, uh, stand up or be quiet. I mean, the list is endless, is it not? And I, and I hear from, from you as, as, uh, as parishioners that you face these kind of situations. And so as I was praying about what do I do after I finish the Christmas series in, in Thessalonians, Esther is like perfect. Because it's the world in which we live. It's the world in which I live. Because I get pressured too as a pastor. Uh, bend and acquiesce here or teach truth. Well, it's costly to teach truth. And I'm, I'm not going to bend here, Lord. I'm going to teach truth. And so you, you, get, you get pushed. But when you look at chapter 4, verse 14 um, of the book, uh, Mordecai is going to tell his, uh, his niece Esther, uh, you need to use your power and position with the king to safeguard your people. And that's, that's where uh, he tells her, you've been born for such a time as this. So what I'm telling you is you, along with me, are not here arbitrarily where we are in Washington, D.C. by accident. You might have not come here willingly. How many came here willingly? You just thought it was the greatest thing that happened to you. <laughs> Praise God, I'm going to D.C., huh? You know, as some of you might have thought, this is great, career advancement, etc., whatever. But, you know, what, whatever your situation is, you're in the Pentagon, in the windowless room, uh, you go in and it's dark, you get off work at night and it's dark, this may be your life, I, I know, you've told me, I've seen the pictures. Um, this might be your life, but don't grumble about it because God has strategically placed you there for doing something great for him. So you're going to do it. You're going to do it. Um, so before we actually get into this great book uh, about making decisions to advance righteousness, we want to do a little background study. So we're going to do the typical things that you would do in a background study of a Bible book by looking at things like the author, who wrote the book. Uh, answer to the question is, I don't know. 
I don't know. No one knows. Nobody knows who wrote the book. Um, and I've read a lot of commentaries on the book of Esther, um, uh, and, and, and none of them tell you uh, who wrote the book. So it's a book like, uh, uh, like First and Second Kings. We don't know who wrote in First and Second Kings. It doesn't tell you who wrote those books. Uh, now, when you read Pauline literature, what does Paul do when he writes a book? I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. I mean, that's how Paul writes. Uh, whoever wrote Esther, that's not how they wrote. So we have to do a little investigating like we are uh, detectives. And so here's some things that uh, are interesting about the person who wrote this book. Item one, um, they were well acquainted with Persian politics, Persian customs, Persian geography, Persian buildings, and, and Persian etiquette in a political sphere, which tells you this person knows a lot about Persia, therefore they must be from Persia. That, that, that was deep, wasn't it? So... Um, <laughs> Number two, this person understood the Jewish calendar. Because if you go throughout the book, because I've read the book many times, chapter 2, verse 16, 3, verse 7, 8, verse 9, and verse uh, 12, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 and 15, and on, he constantly is mentioning Jewish dating. Because Jews had a, had, had, still do, have a secular calendar, they have a religious calendar. Uh, and so he's constantly men mentioning the Jewish calendar, which tells you he's from Persia, item number two, he knows the Jewish calendar, therefore he's probably a Jew. Uh, number three, he appears to have a strong sense of Jewish nationalism. Why? Because he's writing a book about how God saved the Jewish nation from extermination under, under uh, the reign of Xerxes, as we're going to see. Uh, number three, uh, he doesn't mention Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, or the rebuilding of Jerusalem, uh, that it occurred years earlier, uh, which had been around 516 when they refinished the temple. He, he doesn't men mention that. So he's probably not living in Jerusalem when he wrote this book, because you'd think if you're a Jew living in, in Jerusalem that you would write about the rebuilding of the temple. He didn't mention it, because he's probably not there. Uh, and then next, he did possess an, a positive attitude toward the Gentile king at the time, Xerxes. Now, that's interesting, um, which means he's probably a diaspora Jew. And when, the, when did the diaspora, the spreading out of the Jews, occur? Uh, well, it started in 722 B.C. Uh, when Tegelath-Pileser defeated the northern tribes, the ten tribes. Uh, and the, then the Jewish tribes are carried in captivity starting in 605 B.C was the, the first of three deportations. That's when the diaspora for Judah and Benjamin, uh, those tribes began when they were all the way into captivity. Um, and so the, the author is probably one of those Jewish uh, uh, children, a part of that dispersion over into Babylon. When did he write, well, or his, his book is uh, written uh, from a perspective of a person who lived there. Um, the date of the book, when was the book written? So who wrote the book? No one knows. If someone comes to you after church and goes, I totally know. They don't know. Uh, I don't know. They don't know. Uh, uh, so who wrote the book? Uh, probably be a Jew in the diaspora. Uh, what's the date of the book? Uh, verse 1 says uh, of chapter 1, Now it took to place in the days of uh, Ahasuerus, uh, the Ahasuerus who, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, blah, blah, blah. So it was written during the reign of King who? Ahasuerus. So you would want to study the, the, uh, the uh, Persian, and Persia equals modern-day Iran. This is interesting. So the same anti-Semitism that you see today, uh, that's instigated probably by demonic beings that are over that, according to Daniel 10, are the same things that were going on back in that day and time. And so you have King Ahasuerus. Now, what you need to understand is the word Ahasuerus is not his name. Uh, it's like, uh, is Biden's name president? 
Now, don't do anything funny with that. So, so is Biden's name president? No, that's not his name. What is that? It's a title. So Ahasuerus is a title. That's not his name. So it's just a title. It's like, who was the king? Uh, well, the king was the Tsar, the leader, uh, the despot. Uh, Ahasuerus is the title. Uh, but from what we know of history, Persian history, this was Xerxes. Uh, if you've seen the movie 300 about the Spartan warriors, did you, have you seen this? Yeah, I've seen it. Um, that, that's Xerxes uh, in that, the, the crazy warlord. Um, when you think about the, the dating of the book, so the, 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 um, the Achaemenian uh, Empire of, of uh, the greatness of the Persian Empire was founded by Cyrus the Great. So Cyrus the Great, and this is a little bit of history, because history is important because God, God's the God of history. You understand? And so uh, I really didn't like history when I was younger and just kind of blew it off until I realized the German version of Heilsgeschichte, salvation history, that God's working in history to bring salvation. Then it's like, whoa, we got to study history. So I don't know how you feel about history. We're going to convert you this morning. <laughs> so uh, Cyrus uh, founded the, the great Achaemenian uh, Empire, uh, 559 to 530 BC. He's the king who destroyed the Babylonians, the greatest empire at the day, uh, and, then, and then later freed the Jews. So he defeated the Babylonians in 539 BC. Then he begins to free the Jews and allow them to go back. Because if you study Cyrus and how he thought, uh, he didn't want to uh, upset the gods of the nations that were conquered. So his policy was to let them go back and build temples in honor of those gods. Because he wanted all the gods on his side. I'm serious. I mean, that, that, that is how Cyrus thought. And so Cyrus sends the Jews back if they want to go to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their city. And so the first group of Jews returned under Zerubbabel uh, around probably 538, 537 B.C. Now, Xerxes reigned from 586 to 465 B.C. That's when he reigned. Uh, so the book had to be written sometime after 465 B.C. when Xerxes uh, was taken out. He was assassinated. Um, so if you look at when his reign ended, 465 B.C., uh, and then you look at the fact that uh, things were not really uh, too great for the Jews. Nothing was going along from 423 to 331 B.C. when Alexander rolled through Persia and destroyed them. The book's written uh, after his reign ended in 465 B.C. Uh, and probably before Persia started unraveling in 423 B.C., sometime in between there, which just summarized it was probably written during the reign of Artaxerxes, who followed Xerxes. So this would have been... Um, uh, sometime between um, uh, in Xerxes, Artaxerxes' reign, 465 to 423 B.C. is when he, when he wrote, wrote this particular book. Um, in chapter 10, when we get to chapter 10 in a couple of months, um, I'm being optimistic, chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now King Ahasuerus uh, laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, uh, and all the compliments of his authority and his strength, and the complete account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, they are not... Are, written, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? The answer is yes. They took records of everything like we do. Um, and so this is telling you this was the end of his reign when they finished the Chronicles of him. And so uh, the book uh, was written uh, around the time of uh, Artaxerxes, who followed Xerxes. Now, why is it important to understand all that kind of stuff? With, put it into our vernacular. If you wanted to understand a book that was written during the, during the, the political... Uh, schematics and, and mechanizations of uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson, right? If you want to understand that time and, and a book written in that time, you would have to kind of get into that time, right? It would be important to get into that time because like what happened back, were you alive back then? So like, like what happened back then in, in the 60s? 
to understand that time. You'd have to understand the 60s and kind of like, what happened? So in the 60s, you had, well, my, I remember the night my parents set us down in front of a black and white TV, like two channels, rabbit ears, remember? And my, they said, you need to watch this, son. It's the Ed Sullivan Show. It's the British invasion. I'm like, we're being invaded? I know we're in war in Vietnam, but it's an invasion? Uh, it was the Beatles, right? 1964. Uh, Go-Go Boots. Remember those? Uh, the peace symbol, what's it look like? Hey, man, what's up? The peace symbol, uh, Vietnam War, campus demonstrations, psychedelics, um, Jimi Hendrix, um, hippies. They followed the beatniks. And your kids are going, what's a hippie? And then a beatnik, a beatniks, um, tie-dye. I see kids wearing it now. I'm going, you have no idea. Um, I remember the first time I saw a lava lamp. I was like, whoa, I'm not even on drugs and this thing's freaking me out. I mean, the thing flowing up and down. You know what I'm talking about, lava lamps? Yeah, right. So once you get into that mindset, like I can get to 60s under LBJ. I totally, I can understand what's happening. So to understand the history of Xerxes is important for understanding the book of Esther. So we're going to get into history as we study this book. You're going to learn a lot about Xerxes. Um, the setting of the book. Well, the book is predominantly written in Susa, the capital. But this was their winter capital. So they had, uh, uh, so number one, this is a political book. The book is about the political arena and what goes on at a political level. So they had five different capitals. The book is primarily written about what happened in Susa, the winter capital. Because remember, like us, when you want to get away from snow, where do you go? Fredericksburg. Just right down the road. No, you go to Florida. Uh, I read this week that uh, they came up a final tally for U-Haul. Where do where did the majority of their trucks go in the United States in 2023? One-way trips, meaning they're moving there and they're not coming back. Texas. Anybody from Texas? I one person. That's amazing. Yeah. Usually Texans are all about their country. I think the Cowboys are playing today too, by the way. Um, so they had five capital cities. There was Babylon, uh, which was northwest of Susa. There was a uh, Pasargade, which was southeast of Susa. Uh, Ecbatanta, which is north of due north of Susa. And then there's a uh, uh, Persepolis, which is south of Susa, a uh, few miles south of Pasargade. And then there was Susa. So they had these five capital cities that the king could kind of move around based on what the weather was like. Um, and if you didn't have air conditioning and you didn't have heating, et cetera, you needed to kind of move around based upon, uh, I want to be in the mountains when it's hot in the valley. I want to be in the valley when it's cold in the mountains in the winter, et cetera. So we do the same thing. Uh, so the confines of the book is a political setting, which uh, speaks well for DC where we are, uh, is how should I live in that kind of structure? Um, at the time uh, when Cyrus, king of Persia, founded this uh, empire, it covered 2.9 million miles. Yeah, he, he, he was the, the ruler over 44% of the people on the planet at the time. This is, a, this is the empire. It is the power on the planet. And in the middle of that power, power structure, God raises up an orphan girl from a, 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 from a people that were captives who had been defeated by the Babylonians, subsumed by the Medo-Persians, and he's going to take her and he's going to make her the queen of that country. He's going to strategically place her in a position where she's going to have the option to benefit her people and advance God's purposes or not, which just tells you, I don't know where you're at in your life. If you think you're in the smack dab in the middle of a politics and, and it's a mess and it's extremely trying, great. 
because God has strategically placed you where he wants you to be. Biblically, uh, the book of Esther occurs during what I would call the 78-year gap between Zerubbabel's first return uh, to rebuild the temple in 537, 536 B.C. He went back, according to Ezra, chapters 1 to 6, with uh, 50,000 Jews. Then there was the second return under Ezra uh, with 5,000 Jews, according to uh, Ezra, 6, or Ezra chapter 7 to 10. So I'll, I'll show you a chart uh, to help you follow what I'm talking about. Uh, so th this particular chart. So uh, what you have here is uh, the book of Esther is written in this gap period. So Zerubbabel is going to go back uh, under Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, with 50,000 Jews to rebuild the temple, which was finished in 516 B.C. And then Ezra is going to send people back to rebuild the nation. So you rebuild, rebuild the temple, then you have a national revival, and, and you rebuild the people. And then Nehemiah is going to go back later and rebuild the walls, right? So in between these two books, this is you know, you know, chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra, uh, and then chapters um, 7 to 10, you have this gap period. And during that gap period, as the Israelites are going back to their nation, trying to rebuild it with much opposition from the people who live there, uh, they're still, the majority of the people are still in captivity. Uh, and, and God is at work in that political structure. So the question is, can God work in geopolitics? Yeah. In fact, he works well there. So if you compare the book of Ruth with the book of Esther, they're, they're radically different. In the book of Ruth, what do you have? We have a Moabitess. She's a Gentile uh, who marries into a Jewish family. And there's a famine. Uh, and she's eventually forced to, to, go, to go to Israel uh, with her mother-in-law after both, both her and her other uh, uh, sister-in-law's husbands die. And they're, they're forced to go back to Israel. Uh, and it's an agricultural setting. And she's poor. And so God takes a Moabitess and, 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 and happens to drop her into the field of Boaz. Uh, and they fall in love and get married. And she becomes part of the lineage of the Messiah. Don't tell me God doesn't do great things. He does. But when you flip over to the book of Esther, it's just the opposite. You have an orphaned Jewish girl in captivity that God takes her and makes her uh, to the queen of the country. Kind of sounds similar, which we'll get into this later. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the story of Joseph, isn't it? He goes from the pit to the, the pinnacle. So God can position you where he wants you to be. What are you going to do when you face a situation where he wants you to represent him? So you might be at the White House. You might be at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. I don't know where you are. Wherever you are, you're going to get an opportunity to stand up for God. What are you going to do? Uh, and that's what this book is going to be about as we're going to study it. The setting is a geopolitical situation. The structure of the book. I could spend the rest of the day talking about the structure. I won't. Uh, you can read all my notes tomorrow. I, I give you more in the notes than I'm going to actually preach about. Uh, but I'll just mention two things. Number one, uh, some look at the, the book in a chiastic structure. Uh, and so what is a chiasm? So a chiasm is an A-B-X-B-A pattern if you study literature. And what it means is whatever's in the middle of the chiasm is, the, is where the book pivots and where, the, where there's a huge change in the story. So chiasm comes from the Greek word chi, uh, the letter X uh, in, in Greek. Sounds a lot like the German ach, like ach mein lieber, that, that time it's like a guttural thing. Um, and here's what a particular chiastic structure looks like in the book. Uh, well, or did I, they didn't provide it for me. Okay. Well, th there's supposed to be a chart on that. There must not be. Okay, so, no, that's not it either. <laughs> uh, okay, just use your mind. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you can look at my notes tomorrow. It's all, I put the chiastic structure together. So the chiastic structure pivots off of chapter 6, verse 1, where it talks about the king can't sleep one night, so he has insomnia. So what's he do? 
He has them pull out the, the records of his country, and he has them reading through the record. Talk about a way to go to sleep. Just read some bureaucratic, you know, paperwork. And that's what he does. And that's where he's going to find out that Mordecai had saved his life from a coup earlier, and they never rewarded him. So this is where the book pivots when the king gets this info that Mordecai tried to save me, and he did, and I never rewarded him, and the book's going to shift there. But uh, I, the chiastic structure is nice. Oh, there it is. I don't know where that came from. Maybe God, but, um, but I don't think that's the main, main structure of the book. Uh, there's another scholar uh, who looks at chapter 4, verses 14 and following, where Mordecai goes to his, his niece and tells her, you need to do something. And that's, that's going to be in chapter 4, verses 14 uh, to 16, where, he, where he's going to challenge her to step up to the plate. Uh, but the simple structure of the book, the way I look at it, is in a chart that I put together uh, that shows the danger for Israel and the deliverance of Israel. Uh, and here's what it looks like. First five chapters, Israel's in danger. Uh, and the last part, six to ten, God delivers Israel. You can make that personal. You've, your life vacillates between these two points, doesn't it? There's times when you have danger, and then there's times when God delivers. And that's just how God o- operates. And in, in between those, he's looking for you to step up and do the courageous thing. Uh, who are the players of the book? Uh, there's many different people in the book. The major players of the book, uh, there's four uh, in number that are the major players. Uh, these would be the protagonists, the antagonists, etc. Um, well, well, I'll just mention to you who they are and kind of what they're like. Xerxes, the king. What's he like? He's impulsive. Bad for a politician. Impulsive. Easily swayed by what other people think. Possesses a low view of women and is a womanizer, as we're going to discover. Uh, he quickly caves to political pressure. He has no spine. Uh, he loves to party and to get drunk. In fact, most of his decisions are made when he's drunk. Uh, he looks on, upon the outer worth of a woman, doesn't look at the inner worth of a woman. Uh, he ignores details of things. Terrible as a politician to do that. He's very ruthless and cold, which I will show you as we talk about him later. He's, he is teachable because he listens to uh, Mordecai, the right person, um, and, and, and on and on. Uh, Xerxes. Uh, he, there's always a Xerxes type in the world. Number two, Haman, the villain of the book. Uh, what's he like? Uh, he's prideful. He's consumed with power at all costs. He's highly deceptive, an outright liar. Uh, he, uh, he hates Jews, not just Mordecai. He hates all Jews. Uh, he wants to silence all of his opponents. No argumentation. He just takes you out. Uh, he's a very nasty individual. He's very ruthless. He's prideful and self-absorbed. I mean, he's like Narcissus. Uh, he's a control freak, which all these things come together, and arrogance blinds him. There's no way he lives in D.C. <laughs> Maybe you work for Haman. Um, Person number three, Mordecai, what's he like? Uh, Well, this Jewish man, he's caring and compassionate because he takes in an orphan, Esther. Uh, He's highly sacrificial. Uh, He's wise and astute in his appraisal of people. Uh, So he would have totally understood the Myers-Briggs thing and been able to figure people out. Uh, He's fearless uh, because he's the one who exposes the plot of the coup to overthrow the king. Uh, He is a very spiritual man because when he gets bad news about Haman's plot to wipe out the Jews... Uh, he, he goes into immediate uh, fasting and prayer. Uh, he's a man that won't go down without a fight, uh, and he will not bow before a wicked man like Haman. He won't, and he doesn't. Uh, there's always a Mordecai in the world. Uh, and then you've got uh, Esther, character number four, what she like, uh, inner beauty. She also possesses outer beauty. Uh, she's extremely patient. Uh, she's very loyal to the people of God. She's obedient to who the person is over her. She's, she follows leadership. 
She's a team player. She's sensitive to God. She's courageous to the core. She's crafty and intelligent in a good way. Uh, she's highly sacrificial for other people. She thinks about others instead of herself. She plans well before she executes a plan. And boy, does she, as you're going to see. Uh, she's open to wisdom and counsel, as a godly woman is. Uh, we're going to learn her well. The thing is, uh, can you be her? Will you be her? Will you be Mordecai? Purpose and themes of the book, there's basically two, a primary theme and a secondary theme. Uh, primary theme, primary purpose of the book uh, is God wants to show that he is always working behind the scenes to protect his people. Now, here it's the Jews because he's going to bring the Messiah. He's going to protect them. Uh, translated to the church, he protects you because he's told you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Same, same kind of motif. Uh, so uh, he, it doesn't matter how you read through the book, you're going to see the providence of God. Not one time is God mentioned in the entire book. That's why they had a hard time canonizing the book. Luther hated this book. It doesn't mention God. Uh, well, what you see here is God's working behind the scenes even when you don't see his name. Haven't you ever looked at your life and thought, where is God? You feel like he's removed. No, no, he's never removed. He's always working to accomplish great things. So in Exodus, he moved magnificently and miraculously through an old man named Moses who stepped up to the plate and was allowed to be used of God. He did great things in a miraculous way. In the book of Esther, God doesn't move through the miraculous. He moves through the mundane things of life to put a saint where he wants him to be so that saint, that person, Esther, can do things for him. Secondary purpose is to provide Israel, uh, as you get to the end of the book, chapter 10, with the origin of the Feast of Purim because it's not in the Torah. I mean, if you want the Feast of Tabernacles and all those other feasts, that comes from Levitical law. This is hundreds and hundreds of years later is this new feast. And so they had to validate where did this feast originate? And so they're going to write a book to show you how this feast came into being that God always has a plan. Bottom line, God always sends his children into challenging situations. You might be in one right now. Uh, and your situation is to push back evil by his power and to promote holiness. He's sending you. You're sovereignly where he wants you to be. Fear not. And then step forward and do what God has called you to do. And he will bless you greatly. Uh, I know because I read Esther. And that's how God rolls. Good to have you. Why don't you stand? I think it's time to go. Yeah, God, we, uh, we walk out these doors and we pray that uh, you might instill upon us who know you the desire to stand up for you. And forgive us when we haven't. We've been far too quiet. Help us to be courageous, to be merciful, compassionate when we speak up and out. But help us to live bravely lives of holiness and godliness uh, because we've been called to do this. And thank you for the illustration that we get from the life of Mordecai and Esther. In Christ's name, amen.